0: Welcome to the Natural Curiosity Project. I'm Steve Shepard. Thank you for spending a few minutes with me. You know, I've always been curious. I don't know why, I just know that I am. I'm a writer and a teacher and a storyteller, and my job is to be curious, to ask questions, and to share the answers. This program explores my belief that why that simple three-letter question is the most powerful question that any human has ever asked. Every time we ask it, we challenge ignorance and the status quo. This, I believe, curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding, something that, let's face it, seems to be in short supply these days. So thank you for joining me. I hope you enjoy the program. When we moved to Vermont from Northern California in 1991—no culture shock there at all, by the way—we didn't know much about the state that was to become our new home. We knew that it was somewhere up in the Northeast, and in the spirit of full transparency, I had to look at a map to figure out which state was New Hampshire and which one was Vermont. We knew that in the fall, the leaves changed from green to a blaze of red and yellow and russet and gold. We knew that blueberries grew there. We knew that they made a lot of cheese. We knew that Ben & Jerry's was in Vermont. And we knew that the state produced maple syrup. Until we moved, my idea of maple syrup was either Mrs. Butterworth or what used to be called Aunt Jemima. So when I tasted real Vermont maple syrup for the first time, it was almost a religious experience. No high-fructose corn syrup, no artificial flavor, just maple. It was glorious. The thing is, though... Maple syrup doesn't come out of the trees that way. There's a whole complicated and fascinating process that converts maple sap into maple syrup. I've always been curious about this process, so I decided to go ask somebody who knows. Mike Isham, Oak Hill Road in Williston, Vermont. Mike Isham is my neighbor. He and his wife, Helen, own the Isham Family Farm, one product of which is maple syrup. Now, before I get into my conversation with Mike, let me share a few terms with you. People who produce maple syrup in Vermont are called sugar makers. The forest of maple trees that produce the sap that becomes syrup is called a sugar bush. As Mike's going to explain to you, taps are gently hammered into each tree. They're basically a hollow tube with a spout on one end. Traditionally, buckets were hung from the taps, and the farmer would then come by periodically to pour the collected sap from the bucket into a big tank. When you drive around the countryside here in Vermont in the early spring, it's pretty common to see buckets hanging from maple trees in the forest. In fact, they sell a postcard here that has a picture of sap buckets hanging on a telephone pole. The caption says, Flatlander Syrup. A Flatlander is anybody who isn't a native Vermonter. And if you ask the old-time Vermonters, they'll tell you that you're a Flatlander until you're a seventh-generation Vermonter. They take their citizenship rules pretty seriously around here. Anyway, you still see buckets hanging from trees in the woods. But more commonly, especially if the farmer has a big sugar bush, as Mike does, you see polyethylene tubing running all over the forest, bringing the sap from the trees downhill to what's called the sugar house. Now, the sugar house is easy to spot. They're little wooden buildings with a cupola on top, and in the spring, when they're boiling sap, the cupola allows the steam from the boiler and the smoke from the wood fire that heats it to escape. They're very recognizable buildings. Now, the boiler, which is inside the sugar house, is a big flat tray that sits on top of a roaring fire. Mike's is about six feet long, four feet wide, maybe six inches deep. The sap makes its way from the trees to the sugar house where it's collected in a huge tank. The sap is clear, kind of like water, and it only vaguely tastes of maple. Now from that big tank, the sap is allowed to slowly feed into the boiler where it's boiled down and concentrated very carefully and very precisely to make syrup. Michael will explain all of this to you in a minute, but I want you to have a sense of the terminology. By the way, a couple of other terms or phrases before I bring Mike back into the conversation. In Vermont, towns often have what are called sugar-on-snow parties to celebrate the sugaring season. They take maple syrup and they boil it until it's thick, like molasses. They then ladle it onto the snow where it thickens into what's almost like taffy. They then scoop it onto a paper plate with a little bit of snow and they serve it with, are you ready? A dill pickle. And trust me, the pickle is not optional. You need it to keep yourself from going into a sugar coma. Finally, one more phrase that you hear a lot in Vermont that has to do with the maple industry. The phrase is sugaring off. In the world of syrup making, it refers to the process of converting sap to syrup. But it's also used in common speech to mean whatever outcome you're expecting. For example, if somebody makes a questionable business decision, their boss might say, Let's just wait and see what sugar's off. Okay, with that, you're almost qualified to be an honorary Vermont Flatlander. Mike Isham and his family have been doing this for a very long time. And when I say family, I mean multiple generations. I caught up with him at his sugar house, and in between doing myriad things required to keep the sap boiling and the syrup flowing, he explained how
1: maple syrup is made. My father was one of 14 children, 13 that survived into adulthood. All the boys had nicknames. My dad was Button. His brother, his older brother, is here today. His nickname was Cracker. When he got here, he remembered how they used to gather sap when he was a young boy with a horse and sleigh. What they would do is, the snow was really deep in the woods, it'd be waist deep. So they would always take the horses through the woods first just to make paths so they could walk through. They really liked the horses better than the tractor back then because the horse was trained. They could say, step ahead, step ahead, so they didn't have to stop, get on the tractor, move the trailer.
0: Now I hope you have an image of a Courier and Ives painting in your head right now because believe it or not, a lot of syrup producers still make it this way. You go out in the country and you're still going to see
1: horse-drawn sap-collecting sleighs going bucket to bucket. There was always one horse that knew where the buckets were and when the horse got thirsty and knew to take his nose, lift up the cover and would drink the sap out of the bucket. So there was one horse they used to have that had a sweet tooth. Cause you think about a horse, they're like, like a dog, you know, you train them and they, you can train them to go forward, stop, hold, whatever your command was. And they learned that the sap is sweet, it tastes good, and they're thirsty, they know enough to stop, and take a drink.
0: Mike Isham is a farmer, a revered job here in Vermont, as it should be everywhere. I asked him to explain the magic of sugar making from the tree producing sap to the point where a jug of golden amber syrup is sitting on a grocery store shelf. It was warm and moist in the sugar house and the place smelled of wood smoke and maple.
1: Well, generally we start tapping the trees when the trees are dormant in the winter time. I start in January. I wait till the temperature's about 20 degrees nice clear day and I start going up into the woods. I take a cordless drill. I make sure the tree is a minimum diameter of 10 inches. And I put one tap in the tree. I use a 5 16 drill bit. I drill it about an inch and a quarter into the tree. And then I use a, a rubber mallet and I just tap the, the spout into the tree. I can tell when it's seated by the sound. I go by the sound and if a tree is over 20 inches in diameter I can put two holes in it some sugar makers today they're actually starting in December tapping trees because the climate has changed I had a friend this past year started first of December he made syrup the middle of December when we had a warm spell so that the climate is changing the trees are changing usually most years you're in the woods working in the beginning it's you're in, you're in waist deep snow, so you're wearing snowshoes. You have to be careful when you're tapping snowshoes because when you reach up and tap a tree, you might not be able to reach a spout in the spring was it's time to take the spout out. As soon as we're done with maple sugaring by the middle of April, it's important to get the spouts out of the tree as quickly as possible. The tree will heal the the, the wound. The tree will heal this hole. And the next year you won't you'll you'll just see a mark in the bark where the hole was. So usually, sugaring season is primarily the month of March. Years ago, my father, he didn't start tapping trees until town meeting day, the first week of March. But, but, but now, we're getting earlier and earlier runs, earlier and earlier seasons. This year, we got back late, so we, didn't, we weren't ready until the end of February. Last year was a short season, it didn't start until like March 12th, and it was done by the end of March. Maple sugaring is a very short season. It's all up to Mother Nature. We need cold nights. We need warm days. The trees are deciduous trees, maple trees. They have no leaves. So in the fall, the leaves fall. And then in the spring, Mother Nature knows that when the sun starts getting brighter and we start getting warm days, the the tree has an internal vacuum. And the tree will start sucking the sap up, the liquid up from the ground up into the branches to start forming the new leaves. So it's like the lifeblood of the tree. The sap only runs when the tree is making new leaves. So once the buds come out on the trees, the tree's all done and the sap flow stops. It might flow anywhere from 10 to 15 times a season on average. Right now we're in a spell where we've had several warm days in a row the sap will stop flowing. Even under ideal conditions, several days in a row, the sap, the flow declines. What we need right now, you know, towards the end of March, is a good week, a hard, cold winter. Another foot of snow, some ice, we need some more moisture. The trees won't start running in the spring, even with warm weather, if there's a good snow base on the ground, they won't start to run until the snow actually melts from the base of the tree. That's how we know that the the trees are ready to run. We watch the base of the tree. The snow is banked up against the tree. The tree is still too cold.
0: One thing I was curious about was why it doesn't hurt the trees to remove so much sap.
1: To ensure the health of the tree, the tree has to be a minimum of 10 inches in in diameter. We're only using a 5 16th hole and it's only going in about an inch and a quarter. So we're only, it's like giving blood. You know, we all give blood. It's an important thing to do. It doesn't harm our body. And it's the same with a tree, you know, being a sugar maker and a farmer, you don't don't want to harm your trees doing this. It's very important to follow the guidelines of that. We're only taking less than 10% of the tree's total sap. I think it's 68%.
0: My next question was about the actual harvest. I asked Mike how it's done. In the old
1: days, they used a half inch diameter metal spout Today we're using a plastic spout. it's 5 16th diameter. Then we connect that to miles of polyethylene tubing. And that goes in and it all flows downhill to the sugar house and we also use vacuum. When we set it up in the woods, we go through first and we look at the lay of the land. We find out the low spots, the high spots. We run a high tension wire through the woods. And then we attach usually a three-quarter inch to one-inch main line to it with these stainless steel twist ties. And then we look at the trees and we, we plan. We, it has to be all planned in advance. We plan on our what we call a lateral line, which goes from the main line to the furthest tree, to be a maximum of 100 feet. And on each lateral line, we try to put a maximum of four to five taps on it. So I average just over two tops per lateral line. and all these lines have to be tight and they all have to be walked regularly because of damage by wind, wind storms, branches come down, trees are always coming down. Squirrels are chewing on them. Squirrels are a nemesis of, of a sugar maker. Squirrels like to chew. Anyone who has a bird feeder in their backyard knows it. Squirrels like to get into the bird feeders, and they like to get into the tubing. The squirrels have learned that by chewing the bark, there's sweetness underneath at this time of year. So they've also learned that chewing on the tubing, they can get to that sweetness. And so they'll go up there and they'll chew little holes in your loins to get to that sweetness.
0: At this point, Mike had to step away for a moment to join his wife, Helen, on the other side of the sugar house One of the things sugar makers do periodically is measure the sugar content of the sap that's headed into the boiler. They do this with two different devices, a refractometer into which they pour the sap and then hold it up to a light source, usually a window, to take a reading, and a hygrometer, which measures the specific gravity of the sap, which can then be converted to a measure of sugar content. This is a very important step, as you'll soon hear. When Mike returned, I asked him about the process that he and Helen had just gone through and how much sap is required to make a gallon of syrup. At the
1: beginning of the season, when the season is just starting, the sugar content is about 1%. At the peak of the season, it's maybe two to two and a half percent. This year, we peaked out at 2.8% or 2.2%, I'm sorry. By the end of the season, as the season progresses, the sugar content goes down also. Like today, we're only 1.4% sugar. So we'll see the sugar go down to 1%. Now, there's what they call the rule of 86. 86 divided by the sugar content tells you how many gallons of sap it takes to make a gallon of maple syrup. So for a gallon of pure maple syrup with 2% sap, 86 divided by two is 43 gallons. Because we're starting earlier and we're going later in the season now, we're averaging probably one and a half sugar content, so it's taking more like 55, 60 gallons of sap to make one gallon of maple syrup. For every tap that we have in the woods, a standard is about a quart of maple syrup per tap. Every time the sap runs, when the conditions are ideal, we get anywhere from one gallon to five gallons of sap. And it'll be anywhere from one percent to two and a half percent sugar. Trees that are out in the open, Sometimes we'll get maybe three, three and a half percent sap, but on standard, two percent sap is pretty good sap. And
0: how much syrup does he produce?
1: Well, with 1,600 taps, by a good year, a quart per tap, I bake about 400 gallons of maple syrup. And I boil it on a, a, an evaporator that's all stainless steel. These are uh, limited productions. They're all TIG welded, it's all stainless steel. They're very efficient machines. But I noticed that he burns wood to heat the boiler. Yes, we believe that wood-fired maple syrup has better flavor than the oil or gas-fired propane maple syrup. We do it the old-fashioned way. What sugar makers do today is we also have what they call reverse osmosis machines. Now the big commercial units, they go at least 15 to 20% sugar. They take out 90% of the water before they cook it because they're using oil propane. Some go as high as 40%. At the farm here, we go between three to 4% sugar. We believe that the, you get the flavor of the maple syrup from the caramelization of the sugars that are in the sap. That's the important part of you know bringing out the flavor. So there's a much stronger maple flavor when you're not ROing the syrup down and you're, not, and you're burning it with wood. Anyone who has gone out to buy maple syrup in Vermont knows
0: that there are different grades that have different flavors.
1: Well, the lightest grade, which we generally get early in the season, is called the golden delicate, followed by the amber with rich taste. Then the, the next grade is the dark and robust, and then the very dark and robust. They used to be called fancy grade A, grade B, and grade C. But because the Canadians are the make the most maple syrup in the world and they wanted it to be an international grading system. So we kind of followed the Canadians lead. We use the same grades the Canadians use. And what determines the grade? The grade is determined by Mother Nature. Generally early in the season, when the weather is really cold, we get the lighter grades as the season progresses the weather gets warmer there's more bacteria in the sap and we get a darker grade of maple syrup it's it's weird like 12 years ago i, re- I remember one year first week of april we had 80 degree weather motorcycles were going by the doors were open in the sugar house and we we're still making the old golden delicate flavor but now we're seeing less and less every year of that golden delicate flavor last year I don't know of anyone in the state of Vermont that made any of that golden delicate flavor. It's, you know, it's up to the trees, it's up to mother nature. And the most highly demanded grade? I believe that the golden delicate and the and the medium amber are more popular. Today a lot of people that have never had pure maple syrup or being introduced to it. They're used to the darker, the sweeter syrup, so they like the darker syrup. We find that the dark amber with robust flavor is becoming more and more popular. And then at the end of the season, we, you know as the trees start to bud, the last syrup that we make, we used to call it a grade C. They now call it the very dark, very strong flavor. That's a good cooking syrup. It's become very popular for cooking and food products. They're finding new markets for it. They're adding it to barbecue sauce other products that need that maple flavor. Maple syrup is big business but just how big? Last year 2021 Vermont produced 1.5 million gallons of maple syrup. I believe 2020 we produced just over 2 million gallons. Quebec last year produced 11 million gallons of maple syrup. So Quebec is the largest producer of maple syrup. I believe that will become stronger and stronger as the climate is changing. We see ticks up here in Vermont in the woods now. We see insects that we never saw before, invasive insects. As the climate changes, the, the, the belt is moving further and further north. Last year, for example, New York made 650,000 gallons of maple syrup. Maine made 500,000 gallons of maple syrup, followed by Pennsylvania who made 165,000 gallons of syrup. There is some maple syrup made in Ohio and Michigan, but less than 100,000 gallons. So Vermont generally produces more maple syrup than the rest of the United States combined.
0: And that is one sweet story. If you'd like a little taste of Vermont, and a big taste of Vermont maple syrup, please visit the Isham Family Farm website and order some. It goes fast, so don't wait too long. You can find it at ishamfamilyfarm.com. That's I-S-H-A-M, family farm, all one word, dot com. From there, just follow your taste buds to their online maple syrup store, and try not to drool on the keyboard. Thank you, Mike. Hey, thanks for dropping by. I'm Steve Shepherd, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, where we're committed to the idea that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. In every episode, we explore some topic that piqued our curiosity enough to make us want to share it with you. I hope you enjoy the journey. And if you did, I'd appreciate it if you'd leave a comment over at iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you listen to the podcast. Thank you very much. We'll see you in the next episode.